We have been in the book of 1 Corinthians for um, about a year or so now, and, and it seems that we have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for maybe just as long, uh, but t- today we, we are, are, this is the Christmas message of this year. Uh, today we're going we're gonna to close the book of 1 Corinthians and just pick up some themes um, re- regarding Christmas. Uh, it, it's a couple days from now, and the interesting thing about Christmas is as you, as you consider um, the holiday or the holy day, um, C- Christmas is imbued with these bizarre contrasts. Um, I-, I happen to think that Christmas is the strangest uh, day uh, in the calendar year. It's just the oddest time of year. Uh, and uh, for this reason, um, there's, there's two parallel cast of characters going on. Uh, on the one hand, We've got guys like Frosty and, and Rudolph and, and Santa Claus and, and the Grinch and depending on where you stand, John McClane from Die Hard. Uh, that's, that's one parallel, uh, you know, that's one stream of characters you've got going on. But on, on the other hand, you have other familiar characters. There's Mary, there's Joseph, there's, there's angels, uh, and there's baby Jesus. Um, th- there's two storylines that typically show up uh, around this time of year. Um, if, if, you, if your household is anything like mine, uh, the Hallmark Movie Channel is on 24 hours a day and Christmas movies are on 24 hours a day. And I've noticed a theme in all these Hall- Hallmark movies. And the storyline typically involves saving some quaint little town from extinction. And that's it. Right, just some town in the middle of nowhere needs to be rescued uh, from forgottenness and, and themes of family, friendship, and fun uh, are kind of what the culture features around Christmas. But then there's this other storyline that we're familiar with, uh, the awaiting of a Messiah, um, the inbreaking of heaven into the world, the coming of the Savior in the birth of Christ. So th- these two ideas are, are just Together, they're in the same room, in the same conversation, all contained in the word Christmas. When we say the word Christmas, those ideas come along. And probably no better example of this is in songs and song lyrics. And so I googled what's the most popular, most famous, uh, what's the Christmas song uh, of all time. And uh, Google uh, told me that the highest, most important, most familiar, most searched and bought and listened to Christmas song of all time is um, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And um, let, me, let, me, let me read you the lyrics of, of a couple of these verses um, I don't want a lot for Christmas, there's just one thing I need, and I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I don't need to hang my stocking there upon the fireplace, Santa Claus won't make me happy with a toy on Christmas Day. I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know, make my wish come true, all I want for Christmas is you." Now, if you walk into a shopping center, the mall, Macy's, you you may find yourself in an odd setting where you hear that song during Christmas followed by this next song, which I happen to believe is the greatest Christmas song ever written. So you'll hear those lyrics followed up by these. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. 
Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold, he comes, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And then verse 3, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. All I want for Christmas is you. Born that man no more may die. This is the odd thing about Christmas. Um, it's strange. And so this morning, um, what I wanted to do is, is just share some Christmas meditations. Uh, so we won't necessarily look at one passage and, 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 and exegete it as it were. Well, just, just some themes of the biblical um, narrative of Christmas around three words. Uh, light, life, and love. So let's, let's examine that first theme, that first biblical theme of Christmas, the theme of light. So Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, the prophet says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You know, people make a a big deal about Christmas music. Uh, Apparently, it's some sort of cultural sin to start playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving. So there's that noise around Christmas music. But but you can tell it's Christmas time when Christmas lights show up, right? So you can have an ugly house, a pretty house, a big house, a little house, an apartment, whatever. Uh, The daiquiri shops. They don't matter where in town, people will string lights outside whatever building they own or live in or go to. And somehow um, the idea of Christmas lights uh, shows up. We've done this as a family for some time. It's kind of become a family tradition in the Laitano household. We'll, Sunday nights, we'll drive down subdivisions all over town and search for, uh, you know, those folks. If you're one of those, thank you, by the way. If you're one of those that spends time and money and, and building these incredible setups with lights, uh, uh, two favorites of ours, uh, I'm not going to give their address, but uh, there's one house uh, off of Transcontinental in Menory um, that's just incredible. Uh, and then there's another one less well-known on West Esplanade, and, and the, my, 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 I enjoy that house because somehow um, Entergy hasn't figured out what they're doing. They, they have they have the, the light, the and, and energy post um, in front of their house, and there's these power lines, and they've used the power lines as as a as a way to frame Santa and his sleigh and reindeer, and so it looks really really cool. I'm not sure how no one's died yet putting up those lights, but but I love taking my kids down West Esplanade and looking down that house. But ironically, ironically, our culture's fascination with Christmas lights, they are unaware that the scripture, the narrative of scripture, um, light symbolizes something meaningful in the Bible. Christmas brings light. Um, and and the, the, the Bible, and it's interesting, you know, these lights only show up at night, Right? It should be no surprise that, that these lights can only be seen at night. 
Um, and th- there's a reason for that. Uh, unbeknownst to, to Target or Lowe's or, or Walmart, uh, they're, they're helping actually get the Christmas uh, story out through the symbolism of lights in darkness. And th- the Bible presents our world as a place that's actually characterized not by light, but by darkness. And, and when the Bible goes on and describes um, the, the human setting, it does so in two ways. It, it uses the word darkness to describe the human condition, but it typically refers to two things. The world is dark by the evil that the world contains, but the world is also dark by the world's inability to do anything about that evil. So the, the, the world is dark because of the evil darkness in the world, but it's also dark because of its inability to do anything um, about that. If you, if you think of the setting of Isaiah chapter 9, um, this is a, a time in the world where the world was filled with evil, untold suffering and pain. There was violence, injustice, abuse of power. There was homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression, families being ripped apart by all kinds of evil, endless grief. But not only did I just describe the setting in Isaiah, some 900-something years before the story of Christmas and the birth of Christ, I've also described the setting in the story of Christmas and the birth of Christ. But... I've actually also described our setting today. Oppression, evil, pain, sorrow, murder, violence. This has been the story of the world for really as long as the world has existed. Our world is characterized by darkness. And that's one of the ways the Bible goes about speaking of the nature of the world. The other way is, is that the, the world is dark in that it, 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 it's, we are intrinsically unable to do anything about um, the evil and suffering of the world. So if you look back at that verse, Isaiah 9, Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness. So even though there was darkness, it didn't keep them from trying to do something about it, trying to walk in that darkness. And, and it led them to a whole number of different things. Earlier in chapter 8 of Isaiah, we see that the people of Israel, in their pursuit of trying to fix the darkness, the brokenness in the world, they, they did a number of things. They, they turned to uh, necromancers and to mediums and to um, magicians and to all sorts of spiritual mystics to try and help them solve their problems and all the while turning away from God. That they recognized the darkness and suffering and evil all around them. But, but the thing is, they saw a solution, but the solution was within themselves. It's as if they said, all we need is human ingenuity and resources to fix the world. And, and if we're honest, that, that actually sounds a lot like us today. In, in thinking about this point, um, I, I googled two questions. These are not political statements, just two questions. I googled the question, how to end school shootings? And I googled the question, how to end human trafficking? In, in our setting... You know, we're not going to mediums necessarily or to mystics necessarily or to magicians necessarily. We, we, we see certain evils in our world and 
the people of Israel turned to their experts, to their scholars, to, their, to themselves in some sense, to try and fix those. I wanted to see, what does that look like today? And it was interesting to read the number of solutions proposed to end violence, i.e. school shootings, and end human trafficking, i.e. oppression. It, it, it was interesting to see how the, the, the answer to these problems has to do with learning about them, has to do with passing legislation about them, has to do with some sort of education, has to do with some sort of act that we have to uh, get, get, get it together and, and fix this problem. Now, certainly there's, there's valid ideas in that, but notice what's lacking no, 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 I maybe Googled 15, 20 different governmental sites, social sites, just all different sorts of, of, of answers to these questions. And left out is God. Yes. Left out is the idea of maybe we are incapable of doing anything about that darkness. Implied is we can fix these issues if we just try hard enough. We are just like those folks in Isaiah. We're just like them. So many years ago. Yes, like them, we admit that the world is dark. But, but like them, we also admit that if we just try hard enough, the solution is inside of us. However, we, we know better. I would argue that we know better. The more we look for answers to the problems of evil in, our, in ourselves, we realize just how, th- how dark things really are. I think the 20th century made that case for us. The 20th century was the highest moment in human history in terms of technological advancement, economical advancement, education. There were, there were, there's never been more educated people in the history of the planet than in the 20th century. Um, I, I read somewhere about PhDs and graduate degrees and college degrees and, and how in the 20th century represented a time in human history where more people knew more about anything and everything than any other time in history. The 20th century was also a time where economic progress uh, uh, affected the whole world. There was less world starvation than any other time in history. There was, there was more economic growth and, 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 and climbing the social ladder type thing more than any other time in history. So that's education, right? That's money. That's human resources. Translation, worldwide, worldwide people were the smartest, wealthiest, and most educated than ever before. But why is it? Why is it that historians tell us that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind? There has never been a time in the history of the world where people killed more people in warfare than the 20th century. So that challenges this idea that the answers are found within ourselves. See, and this is part of what Christmas does. It it introduces this theme of light. This is why those Christmas lights that you drive around are so powerful. Never look at them the same way. They remind us that there is in fact darkness in the world, but those lights point us to something outside of the world for hope. And that is the light of Christ. Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. 
The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And notice, he says, that it doesn't say from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. There is light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. Jesus would say this about himself in John chapter 8 verse 12. He would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12 46, Jesus said, I have come to the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The theme of Christmas light reminds us that Christmas dispels the shadows of a darkened world by means of the light of Christ. Let's look at a second theme, the theme of life. So one of the themes that we learn in Christmas, that Christmas, the biblical Christmas story points us to is the theme of light. A second theme Christmas points us to in the biblical storyline is that of life. Isaiah 9 again, but this time in verse 6, the prophet says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A couple of weeks ago, I came across a series of four seemingly unrelated articles in the Sunday edition of the New York Times. Uh, I'm going to read you the headlines of these articles, and they will seem totally disconnected, but they're not. So, article number one, here's a heading. A time for peace, quiet, and tea. The subhead, in Los Angeles, some women are finding serenity in a cup. Another article with the headline, Experiencing the Silent Treatment. The subhead, the goal during a meditation retreat, spend a week being mindful and remaining quiet. Another headline from the wedding section of New York Times. Headline, stress before the wedding? A therapist could help. And the fourth, uh, and this was on the editorial page of that same edition, the article with the headline, Hypnosis Changed My Life. So, tea, meditation, stress-free wedding therapy, and hypnosis, right? Four seemingly unrelated ideas. They all show up in the Sunday edition of the New York Times. What do they have to do with each other? Well, this is what they have to do with each other. People are looking for answers to life. People are trying to find things to help them in life. People are looking for that which can help them describe and, and, and walk through life. This passage tells us that a person was born. For to us a child is born and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. So not only is a person born, but this person is unique. He's a wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Hold that thought. Um, if, if I were to ask you in this room, um, everyone should know 
what to do in case of an emergency. So if, if we were in an emergency, if you were at the mall or in your house and, and there's an emergency, what do you do? You grab your phone and you do what? You dial 911, right? Um, but do you know the history of 911? Do you know how that system of emergency response came to be? Well, in 1964, the world was shocked to hear the story of the death of a 28-year-old woman, Catherine Genovese. Um, she was attacked outside her apartment in New York City. What, what made her story so shocking, though, was that while her assailant was attacking her, she was in the, in the alleyway on, below the apartment complexes, people could hear her screams for help. And people turned lights in their apartment on, but no one came to help her. When the assailant saw the lights, he left. But when he saw that no one came to help, he came back and, and her life was taking that night. The account is brutal. I'm going to uh, save you the details. But wh- wh- why didn't anyone help this poor woman? Why didn't any- an- an- anyone do anything about this? Well, psychologists came up with a name for what happened. They call it the bystander effect. And this case was actually the driving force to implement the 911 system. The, the, this is what society... You know, we, we need to do something about this, right? But again, why didn't anyone help? I don't need a psychologist to tell me the obvious reason why no one helped. Why did no one help this poor woman? And the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Fear. In, in coming down from those apartments to help that woman, you would place yourself in a, in a vulnerable position. You would put yourself in a setting where you might get hurt. Something might happen to you in the process of saving her life, your life might be taken. This is really why I think what happened. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, a lot. See, when Jesus heard the cries of a broken world, he came down. A child was born. He made himself vulnerable. He came down and heard our cry. T.F. Torrance in his book Incarnation says, Mankind is not only estranged from God, but estranged from from true humanity determined and controlled in their self-will by evil power that destroys their very being. They are subjected to evil existence and live in the shadow of death and destruction. That is what lies at the root of human anxiety, for the deepest being of man and woman is threatened with chaos and negation. That's that fear of, I'm going to get hurt. Into this situation where the very being and existence of man is threatened with destruction, God himself enters. And takes this human being and existence upon himself. That is to say, in Christ Jesus, his incarnate son, God himself enters into this estranged and threatened existence of man. That is what God does. He comes himself in order to deliver us from subjection to evil, from subjection to destruction, and from subjection to death. Translation. Life is hard. Life is scary. Sometimes it's too much. It's unbearable. We need help. This verse tells us something. That 
Christ has come down. He's heard our cry, but it tells us something more. He came down as a wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews helps us. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen to this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 5, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And Hebrews 5 again, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The implications of this are outstanding. This is what this means. That if God in fact has come in human flesh, then Jesus Christ understands the human condition. Which means that Jesus Christ understands you. He's been where you have been. He's been where you are. He knows what it's like. You know, there's, there's, there's something about walking through life with, with someone that has been where you are. Um, when my wife was pregnant with our, our second daughter, um, her OBGYN was pregnant with her first child. And um, Andrea delivered, and some months after, uh, pretty soon after Andrea um, gave birth to Eliza, uh, my wife's OBGYN gave birth to her first. And, and um, in, in, a, in a conversation, in uh, one of the post-delivery uh, um, uh, conversations they had, um, I'll never forget what she told Andrea. So here, here's, a, here's a trained doctor, really good at her job, delivered countless number of babies, But she told her that she didn't really get it until she gave birth to her own child. It changed the way she practiced medicine. It changed the way she OBGYN'd. Um, She she got it. She understood the the, the pain. She, She understood what... She got it all. Now, she'd visibly seen it many, 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 many times. But until she had her own child... She, she, she grew in her empathy towards women in, um, in, in pregnancy. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets life. Have you ever been betrayed? Well, Jesus was betrayed by someone in his deepest inner circle. Have you ever been abandoned? Not felt abandoned, actually abandoned. Jesus was, was abandoned by his closest friends. You ever been mocked, insulted, reviled, ridiculed, made fun of? Jesus was spit on, cursed at, and paraded naked in front of an angry crowd. 
You ever felt the pain of losing someone you love? Jesus wept at the grave of his good friend Lazarus. Have you had issues within your family? Is there brokenness in your family? Is there infighting and bitterness in your family? The Gospels tell us that Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They, they, they did. They thought he was nuts. Are you broke? Have you lost a job? Maybe you're looking for one. Maybe you're having a hard time making ends meet. Do, do you live life under the pressures of financial instability? The Bible says that the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. He had no money. He didn't own a pillow. Has God ever denied your prayers? Have you ever fervently prayed for something and felt God say no? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the Father for another way. And it seems to me that the Father said no. Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? Not family, not friends, but have you, do you feel forsaken by God? Alone, destitute, forgotten? On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you facing death? Maybe there's an illness that's ravaging your body. Jesus faced death too. He's experienced it all. There's not a setting in life that Jesus is not intimately aware of. He's experienced our suffering. That's what makes him the wonderful counselor. Here is someone who lived through life, got punched by life, died, and was risen back to life. Offers his life and says, come and follow me. And this is a theme in the Christmas story that God in Christ has experienced our life. But more than helping you with your life, he has come to give you his life. Jesus is life. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus knows what you feel like. And he wants to walk with you in that process. The last theme that Christmas reminds us of is the theme of love. So what is love? Again, Google was a helpful uh, study resource for me this week. And uh, so I Googled what is love and um, the profound words of the 90s pop hit, what is love, came up. And... um, so I'm going to read to you the deeply poetic expression that this 90s one-hit wonder band, whom I have no idea what their name is, um, defined as love. So here, here it goes. R- r- write this down. Uh, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. So that's, that's music's attempt at defining love. And as a musician, that hurts me. Um, that hurts me. 
science can do better, right? So science explains everything, right? So science can obviously do better. Well, according to, to, to um, uh, the, the materialistic worldview, uh, uh, love is the chemical reactions produced in the brain that lead to uh, a, an ex- explosion of chemicals and hormones in the body that lead you to behave the way you do. So that's how science defines love. It's, it's, it's chemicals in your brain, right? That, that's, that's not very helpful. Now, literature. Okay, so uh, l- literature, there's poetry in literature. So literature might have um, a better recourse of, uh, at, at describing what love is. And, and, um, and yes, they do. They, they get really, really close. So, um, um, don't freak out about this analogy I'm, I'm going to use. Don't send me emails about it. But um, I, I, think that, I think that the most, the most profound description of, of or, or the, the most relatable, modern description of love uh, that I've encountered in, in literature and storytelling uh, actually came from a, 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 a group of, um, of books, uh, a, a seven-series book called Harry Potter. And um, if you don't know the story, it doesn't matter, but um, the, whole, the whole book hinges around this child, Harry Potter, who's special because he was able to resist the attacks of this most powerful evil um, wizard. And this evil wizard it was a stopless force. Um, no one could do anything about, about him. And he comes and he kills Harry's parents. And he's about to kill Harry. And something happens when he, he tries to kill Harry. And he winds up destroying himself in some sense. So Harry is protected. Later on, it's revealed that, 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 that love protected Harry and and it we 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 relate to that 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 love is this force love is this this powerful um, ectoplasmic thing that we can we can walk into and out of now now uh, that's troubling to some degree but it's helpful but it's also limited it's also limited what does the Bible say about love how does the Bible define love well. Phil, you were right on point to quote this text because I think this is one of the key Christmas texts that, Phil, you're right, gets overlooked in Christmas. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, gift giving is, is kind of what, what Christmas um, features uh, people giving gifts to to um, others. Um, thought experiment, all right? Um, think about the greatest gift you can you can imagine. If you're a Christian, don't say Jesus. Like like just b- bear with me. Like think of something. Like th- think of the greatest gift you can imagine. Um, if I were to ask my dad that question, he'd say a 1968 fully restored Pontiac Trans Am. That, that's the greatest gift he could ever get, right? Now, now, I'm asking you, think about the greatest gift you can receive. So if Santa Claus, you know, just think about the greatest gift you could ever receive. You got it? Okay. I bet you I can make that gift better. I can make that gift better by not changing anything about the gift. You get to keep your gift. But I'm going to show you how I can make that gift 
better. Imagine someone you love, someone you admire, someone special, sacrificing themselves, their resources, their time to get you that gift. Did I succeed? Did I make that gift better? If you're honest with me, something else has happened in your psyche. The value of that gift has now given way, has been overtaken, has been consumed by the value of the gift giver. The the act of that person, once you connected that gift to someone, that act of gift giving has now superseded whatever the value of that gift was. If you're honest, if you're honest, you would agree with me. Well, Christmas is the story of a gift, of a gift of God's love, a gift of immeasurable worth, but not disconnected. God did not wrap a spiritual gift and send it to Bethlehem, awaiting that gift to be opened. He did something much, much more than that. John Stott helps us. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The Apostle John dares to say that apart from Christ and his cross, the world would never have known what true love is. Of course, all human beings have experienced some degree and quality of love, but but John is saying that only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world, namely, the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. God gave his son. If God had sent a man to us as he had sent the prophets to Israel, we would have been grateful. If he had sent an angel, as he did to Mary at the Annunciation, we would have counted it a great privilege. Yet in either case, he would have sent us a third party, since men and angels are creatures of his making. But in sending his own son, eternally begotten from his own being, he was not sending a creature, but giving himself. The incarnation was but the beginning of his self-giving. Having emptied himself of his glory and taken the nature of a servant, he then humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. This was to give himself to the uttermost, to the torture of crucifixion and to the horror of sin-bearing and God-forsakenness. Sin and death are inseparable. But whereas usually the one who sins... And the one who dies are the same person. On this occasion, they were not. Since it was we who sinned, but he who died for our sins. This is love. Holy love. Inflicting the penalty for sin by bearing it. Christmas is the divine declaration of love. God has gone to infinite lengths for you and for me. How far is the east from the west? How far is the north from the south? 
How far do you think it is from heaven to earth? That's the distance Jesus traveled. How far is perfection from imperfection? How many levels does it take for one to be perfect and then come and be imperfect? What does it mean for one to be boundless, limitless, all-knowing, and then to be featured inside human flesh? What do those things mean? What does it mean for, a per- for, for, for an entity to, to be able to breathe stars into existence? To control suns and moons with the, with the palm of his, hold them in the palm of his hand? Then to have to be, dare I say it, breastfed by a woman? What does that mean? For the one who has created everything to then become dependent on his creation. How would you describe that? I can think of a word, and the word is love. God has gone through infinite lengths to show you that his love is available for you. So here are the themes this Christmas I'm hoping that you guys think through in a couple of days. Christmas is light. We do in fact walk in the world of darkness, but there is hope. For Christ has come to shine light into this darkness world, into this dark world and offer us hope. Christmas reminds us of the theme of life. That yes, in fact, life is hard. But there's someone who has the answers to life. Because he is the author of life. And he's lived life in our setting, like our setting, and can counsel us through life. And then finally, the theme of love. There's no no greater expression of love than for the infinite, in one sense, to become finite to make way for you and I to have access to the eternal God. Eric, you can come up. Here's what I'd like to do, um, since Eric and I didn't talk about this. Um, let, let's pray together. I'm asking you guys to stand with me. Part of our special Christmas treat for you guys this morning is, is you get a short sermon. Um, Merry Christmas. That doesn't mean church is over, by the way, but just letting you know. So Eric, if at some point when I'm done praying, you want to lead us in a song, you're more than welcome to. But let's, let's go, go, go to Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, what vast, magnificent, marvelous, matchless love have you showed, Lord, in the birth of your Son, Father, traveling infinite lengths for undeserving sinners to have, O Lord, the opportunity to be connected to the author of life. And not in some detached way, O Lord, not in some idealistic, abstract way, O Lord, but in a relationship, Father. Christ is one who has come to relate to and with us. He has come to offer a way to live life. Give us answers in life. Provide for us in life. And Lord, he's provided us the greatest thing about life. Victory over that which we fear most, which is death. Father, this is what Christmas reminds us of, Lord. 
That we should not be bound to despair and hopelessness, Lord. That we should not throw our hands up in the air and say, gloom and doom, the world is a dark place. But no, there is light. A light has come upon a darkened world in the person of Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done through the Christmas narrative and through the person of Christ. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.